10 mentioned Titus as well. And we're not going to focus on Titus today. We're just going to focus on that 1 Timothy chapter 3, a 1 through 7 passage. So Titus is very similar. And so we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. You know, today is Memorial Day, and I have to say that I am very grateful to all of our veterans. I am very grateful for all who died serving our country and gave their lives. When I was a young boy, I was in Cub Scouts, and on the Saturday before Memorial Day, we would go to the Veterans Administration Cemetery, which is in Dayton. It's a very large cemetery there in Dayton. And we would place flags on all the graves of the various veterans. And my brother and I, we always wanted to get to my grandfather's grave site to put the flag on his grave. As I think of Memorial Day, I also think of being good citizens. You know, Christians must be the best and most upstanding citizens of our country. We must be good people. We must be responsible. We must have the best ethics. We must be the hardest workers. We must have the most integrity. We must be dependable. We must be the kindest. And, you know, I love history, and I was recently listening to a history book about the Revolutionary War, and now I have another one. It's an audio book I downloaded through Audible about George Washington by Ron Chernow. It's a very, very, very long book. It's 41 hours on Audible if anybody's interested. So I guess I'm going to have to do a lot of running. And uh, about George Washington, and, and certainly the Revolutionary War is probably one of my top favorite historical periods to study. It's a fascinating time period. I, I love the Puritan time period, and I'm, I'm starting to enjoy studying the Civil War a little bit and World War II. Uh, but these Revolutionary War people, amazing people who God brought together for the founding of this country. And in my opinion, one thing about the United States during that time, and at least up until recently, we were a country made up of dedicated citizens. Uh, we were people who did not like to depend upon anyone else or the government. We were hard workers. We had good financial stewardship. We were frugal, and we did not like to be in debt. We took all these great qualities into the military with us. Our founding fathers were dedicated men, and their wives were every bit as dedicated. John Adams is one of my favorite of those men. I read a biography about him by David McCullough a few years ago, and it was a very good biography. And we know John and Abigail Adams, both very dedicated people, dedicated to their country, dedicated their, to their family. They were, they were faithful to their country. They were faithful to their family. But they were not faithful to God. John Adams was most likely a Unitarian, which means he denied the Trinity. George Washington was faithful to his wife and quite a gentleman, and he was also, I believe, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Washington was a good man and a good gentleman. What does it mean to be a good person? Now, if any of you are thinking clearly about the Bible, you could easily say, the Bible says no one's good. I know, you were all thinking that, weren't you? Uh, the Bible says no one's good, no, not one. It's in Romans 3, 10 through 12, and, and, and that is true. We all miss the mark of the holiness, and we all need Jesus. But you know what I mean when, I, when someone says, someone's a good person, just a very good person. 
I heard that a few years ago. I was moving into our house in Alliance, and our landlord, who became just a great guy and great friend, was talking about our neighbor, and he said, he's just a good person. He's a, a real gem of a person. What does it mean to be a good person? I think you know what I mean. Christians ought to be that way. You know, we continue the sermon series on scriptures to pray for your children. And some could ask, uh, could this series be titled scriptures to pray with your children? Scriptures to pray for your children, scriptures to pray with your children. And I'm glad you asked that question. I would say, yes, you can pray them with your children. Definitely. As long as you're praying them for your children. We need to be praying the word of God back to God for the church for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our descendants. We need to be, what better thing to pray than praying the Bible, praying the Word of God. So pray them with your children, pray them for your children. Pray the Scriptures. These are Scriptures to pray. So today we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, and Titus 1, 5-9. You know, these passages are God's standard for leadership. They are God's standard for church leaders. We, we don't have a choice in this standard. It is God's standard. However, they ought to be two passages that we all strive for and that we all pray for. Whether, you know, not everybody is called to leadership. Not everybody is called to be a church elder or an overseer or a deacon. But we are all called as Christians to pursue godliness and holiness and righteousness. These two passages could be summed up with the idea of pursuing holiness and therefore having a good reputation with those outside the church. Pursue holiness and therefore have a good reputation with those outside the church. And how do we do this? We don't. We let the Holy Spirit do it through us. But it must start with prayer. I strongly believe nothing can happen in the Christian life apart from prayer. And we are praying, we are praying our heart's desire to God. And we are looking at the scriptures and reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures. And we think, that's the man of God I want to be. Or that's the one of God you want to be. And you pray it back to God. Wouldn't we expect God's going to honor that and help you pursue these standards? So I desire that Megan and I and our descendants are good people who strive to live by these expectations. I further desire that we understand these patterns of behavior are expected in church leaders. Therefore, this has been my prayer. And it's twofold. It's praying that we strive to pursue these standards in our own lives. But it's also my prayer is that my descendants and myself, that we all understand what God expects in our churches. Because in our churches, we've kind of lost the way across the country right now. We forget that God has a standard for leadership. And we cannot move to the right or to the left in that standard. We forget that God has a standard of authority. And we do forget that the Bible is our standard as well. We forget that God has a standard in preaching, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. We've got to remember that. I would pray something like the following. Lord, I ask that Megan and I, Mercedes and Abigail, their spouses and our descendants, that we strive to live by the 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 expectations of church leaders, whether we are in leadership or not. Further, Lord, 
I ask that Megan and I and our descendants hold true to these expectations within the church. I pray that we teach and train the church what patterns of behavior we must expect from our leadership. You know, it's not about the prayer. It's about the word of God being prayed. So don't copy my prayers. Copy the Bible into your prayer life. Meditate on the Bible. Memorize it. Make it a part of your life. And then pray it back to God. You know, and I pray that myself and my descendants live out these expectations. Timothy already read the passage, so we're not going to read it again. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is the one I'm going to focus on today. Titus chapter 1 is, is, is very much similar, and I'm going to highlight the vices and virtues mentioned in both of these passages. So let's briefly first look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. If you have your Bible opened, you can continue to look at it. If you're uh, using an iPad or a tablet, don't use your pen to mark up the text. It's good to mark up Bibles, though. I do believe that. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we have instructions for overseers and elders. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we have instructions for deacons and their wives. So it goes from overseers, and uh, you could also use that word elders there. And then it goes and switches to deacons and their wives. So in verses 1 through 7, Paul begins and ends this section with the same theme. The idea of being above reproach. And then the idea of being respected by those outside the church. Christians are called to be above reproach and be respected by those outside the church. And so when I talk about this passage, I believe Paul is talking about patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior. These are patterns we should expect in church leaders. And these are patterns we ought to strive for in our own Christian life. Now, I emphasize patterns for a reason. I read this passage in a deacon's meeting once, and somebody said, well, then we're all out. You know, the, the, the passage gives a high standard for church leadership. But what she was missing is we all mess up here and there. But we ought to be striving to grow in our relationship with Christ. We ought to be growing more in holiness, more than falling into our own sin nature. Our patterns ought to be growing in our relationship with Christ. It ought to be two steps forward, and then maybe one step backward. But then we start walking forward in our Christian life again, if that makes sense. Chuck Swindoll actually wrote a book a long time ago uh, named something like that, two steps forward, one step backward. We might mess up, and we need to repent. That ought to be something we expect as Christians, is repentance and then moving forward. But these are patterns of behavior. These are also patterns we should expect in all Christians, as, as I've already stated. It's also important that you as a congregation um, and that our leaders are, un, that we all understand that we are called to a higher standard in, in our leadership. Our leadership as elders and as uh, administrative council, they are, uh, they are called by God to a higher standard. And we really do not have a choice in that matter. I've already mentioned that, but I have an illustration. There was a study done, and 31%... 31% of congregations have said that they would accept a member of a cohabitating unmarried couple as a lay leader. Now, biblically, that does not fit. Biblically, it just does not fit. And now going to the next step there, the next part of that survey, 23%, 23% of congregations said that they would accept a member of an openly homosexual couple 
as a lay leader in the church. Lay meaning a volunteer leader in the church. As Christians, we ought to, we need to, biblically, this passage is saying, we need to expect our leaders are growing in a relationship with Christ and not living in sin. So what's the problem with cohabitating as we think of that, 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 that's living together, man and woman, but not being married? The problem is generally you've just given in to it. I'm not even going to pursue purity. I'm not even going to try. And actually, in fact, I'm also going to give the appearance of sin in my life. And part of this passage is there should not even be the appearance of sin. It's one thing to struggle. It's one thing to, re- to then repent and move on. It's another thing to give in to that sin. And when we start giving a little, we end up giving a lot. Let's look at the full list of vices to stay away from. And these are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But I'm also lumping in Titus 1, 5 through 9. We must pray that we and our children stay away from the appearance of sin in our life. That's something to pray for. That's something mentioned in this passage. We must pray that we and our children are not addicted to wine. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7. I know this passage just mentions wine, so don't think beer is okay. If you are addicted, it is a problem. Lump them in together, okay? We must pray that we and our children are not pugnacious or quick to argue. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, and Titus 1.7. We must pray that we and our children are free from the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. Later on, the same letter, Paul will say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We must pray that we and our children are not fond of sordid gain. That's in Titus 1, 7. Now, I understand that staying away from these and pursuing what I'm about to talk about makes us good citizens and makes us Christians pursuing God. And this makes us trustworthy. There was a study done. A business leader identifies the importance of trust. In his book, The Trust Edge, business consultant David Horsiger contends, trust, not money, is a currency of business and life. He points to a 2009 research study called the Edelman Trust Barometer. The Edelman Trust Barometer. The study, based on interviews with over 4,000 people in 20 countries, this is not a small study. It's, again, it's 4,000 people across 20 different countries. And it highlighted the importance of a company's ability to build trust. For instance, when people trust a company, when they trust a company, 91% chose to buy from them. 76% recommended them to a friend. 55% will pay a premium to do business with them. share positive experiences online. 26% bought shares. In contrast, the study also found that when people distrust a company, 77% refuse to buy from them. 72% criticize them to a friend or a colleague. 34% shared their negative experiences online. 17% sold shares. Christians must pursue God's standard and we must be trustworthy we must be good people again that's my prayer for you as a church I serve that's my prayer for my children and grandchildren great-grandchildren great-great-grandchildren that we are pursuing holiness and godliness and righteousness and certainly that means we're trustworthy now here are the full list of virtues to pursue and pray for these are virtues and these include Titus 1 5 through 9 
We must pray that we and our children will be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6. Above reproach doesn't mean you never mess up. It means there's no pattern where somebody could point out that person is always a liar. Always, always lying and never trustworthy. You can't count on them. They're not ever dependable. That's a bigger problem. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We repent and we move on. We must pray that we and our children will be a faithful husband or wife. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6. We must pray that we and our children are temperate. That's 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6. Temperate. You're not given to excess. You know, the temperance movement had to do with the excess and drunkenness of alcohol, and they went to the abolition and prohibition movement. But in, at its root, temperance, it means you're not given to excess. We must pray that we and our children are prudent. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2, and Titus 1, 8. You know, prudence is something we've lost as a society. We have to get back to that idea of prudence. We must pray that we and our children are respectable. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Think about how much value being respectable has. Can you go anywhere in sales if you're not respectable? You know, if you're not, it's, it, it's, it's so important. We must pray that we and our children are hospitable. We see that in this passage as well. Now, hospitality was a big deal then because they didn't really have uh, Hampton Inn and Suites and Days Inn and Marriott and things like that. They needed people to be hospitable when the Apostle Paul was traveling around. But hospitality is still very important. It's important in the church. It's important in our own lives. We must pray that we and our children are able to teach. Able to teach. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 9. You know, everyone is not called to necessarily teach as far as standing in front and, and speaking to people. However, being able to teach is not just about public speaking. It's about being able to refute false doctrine and understand correct doctrine. And I want my children and descendants and my family to know proper doctrine. Somebody told me once, the cults, C-U-L-T-S, the cults are the unpaid bills of the church. We're not teaching proper doctrine. We're not teaching how to interpret correct doctrine. And so we have the cults. And most of them mess with the deity of Jesus or the theology of who Jesus is, what we call Christology. So being able to teach means that we can understand correct doctrine. We must pray that we and our children are gentle. 1 Timothy 3.3. You know how important gentleness is in the church and in society? You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Gentleness is critical. It's so important. You know, the Proverbs say that a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, being able to respond with gentleness when accused goes a long way. We need that. We must pray that we and our children are peaceable. 1 Timothy 3, 3, peaceable. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We must pray that we and our children manage our own household well. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and Titus 1, 6. We must pray that we and our children are self-controlled. Titus 1, 8. Now, self-control is another one of the fruit of the Spirit. And self-control goes a long way as well because self-control determines whether we're going to fly off the handle at somebody and have road rage or whether we are going to be gentle and a peacemaker. We must pray that we and our children have a good reputation with those outside the church. 1 Timothy 3, 7. We must pray that we and our children are not 
Self-willed, Titus 1.7. Self-willed. You know, we got to be guided by the Holy Spirit, not by our own self-interest. We must pray that we and our children are God's steward, Titus 1.7. There's just a few expectations and qualifications here, right? I mean, there's a lot here. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit's help. We must pray that we and our children will love what is good, Titus 1.8. Do we love what is good? As Christians, it's important that we love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. We must pray that we and our children are just. Just, Titus 1.8. We must pray that we and our children are devout. Devout, Titus 1.8. We must pray that we and our children are living a godly life. Living a godly life. Leaders are called to lead and lead by example, but all Christians must aim high. We all must aim high, pursuing godliness and holiness and righteousness, pursuing God's standard. And we don't do that, and we do not do that, when we are comfortable living in sin and living in our own selfish ways. It might show who we serve, and it's not God. But when we are pursuing God's ways, pursuing God, it shows who we serve. I read the following. At the age of 23, Second Lieutenant Carl Marlantis was in charge of 40 Marines, 40. And it was during an intense battle in the Vietnam War. Marlantis had moved his men into the jungle as they waited for U.S. jets to bomb a hill that North Vietnamese soldiers had overtaken. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the jets came and dropped their bombs on the wrong hill. So when Marlentis led his men out of the jungle, they were instantly, instantly under fire from untouched machine gun positions. Marlentis knew it would only take a few minutes before the enemy rockets and mortars found his troops. The entire mission ground to a halt as the U.S. soldiers ducked behind downed trees and huddled in shell holes. Marlentis knew what he had to do next. He writes, If I did not get up and lead, we'd get wiped out. Leaders lead by example. That's true in the church. It's true in society. He says, if I did not get up and lead, we'd get wiped out. I did a lot of things that day, but the one I'm most proud of is that I simply stood up. I stood up in the middle of that flying metal, and I started up the hill. I simply ran forward up, this, up the steep hill, zigzagging for the bunker all by myself, hoping, hoping my own soldiers wouldn't hit me in the back. It's hard to zigzag while running uphill, loaded down with ammunition and grenades. But then in the midst of his solo charge up the hill to take out the enemy, Marlentis suddenly saw some movement in his peripheral vision. He saw some movement. It was a Marine. He was about 15 meters below me, zigzagging, falling up and running again. Immediately behind him, a long, ragged line of Marines came moving up and weaving up the hill behind me. Behind the line were spots of crumpled bodies lying where they'd been hit. They'd all come with me. Everyone was intermingled, weaving, rushing, and covering, taking on each hole and bunker one at a time in groups. We, we the group, just rushed forward all at once. We couldn't be stopped. Just individuals among us, we were stopped. But we couldn't be. I was we 
no longer me. You know, I'm really grateful for this country, and I'm really grateful for our veterans and the men and women who have died fighting for our country. And we see that our country, historically, going back as I began with the Revolutionary War time period, was founded of men and women who were good people, men and women of good character, good people. And that is my prayer for the church, and that is my prayer for myself and our descendants, that we strive to live by God's standard. And we do that, we will also be called good people. Because we'll have integrity, responsibility, trustworthiness, and we will have a good reputation with those outside the church. And again, as I said in the beginning, we cannot do this on our own. We can't. We can only do it by letting the Holy Spirit work through us. And the first step there is knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so let me ask you point blank, right in your face, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? I was listening to a sermon this morning. They referenced how D.L. Moody once was preaching. I think it was like 1871. And he's preaching in Chicago. And he gave the gospel and he said, go home and think about it. And then determine if you want to commit your life to Christ. And then later he said, I would never do that again. Because after that, the fire of Chicago hit. This great, massive fire. And many, many, many people were killed. We are never promised tomorrow. Think about it now. Who are you serving? Who is, who is Lord of your life? Who takes number one priority? Jesus calls us to make him Lord of our life. And we'll have ups and downs. We'll have valleys and hills. And we'll struggle and we'll mess up. But I really believe a fruit of the Christian is repentance. We mess up. We repent to those that we've sinned against, but most of all to Jesus. We say, I messed up once again. Holy Spirit, help me to live a life following you. The Bible teaches in the meta-narrative of the Bible. The meta-narrative. That means the Bible is one grand story with many smaller stories. The Bible teaches that God created us to be with him. <clears throat> God created us to be in a relationship with him. By the way, technically, sin is a break in a relationship. That's why repentance is always important. And that's what we see. Our sin separates us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned and when all we sin, just one sin separates us from a holy, righteous, perfect God. We see that sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Our good works are credited to us, but not enough. We need something more. So paying the price for our sin, Jesus died and rose again. And everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And life that's eternal means we will be with Jesus forever. Are you confident that you will be with Jesus forever? If some mass tragedy hit this area today. Are you trusting in him as Lord and Savior? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith unless you fail the test. What's the test? There's probably many debates about that, but I think a part of it is repentance. Am I repenting daily and turning my life to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are Lord. I am not. I need to live for you. And I ask you, are you? I must ask myself, am I? Are we going to persevere in the faith? Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, I believe, 
It says how much good they did. They did this right. They did this right. They did that right. But they had neglected their first love. Are you serving your first love being Jesus? Pray with me right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we are serving you. You are our first love, oh, Lord. I pray that we have surrendered to you and we are surrendering to you. I pray that we are dying daily to self so that we can live for you, oh, Lord. Help us to live for you. Lord God, I pray that we at Bethel Friends Church will strive to to live by these standards of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That we will be good people pursuing you, pursuing holiness and godliness and righteousness. And we will also understand what you expect in your church leaders. These expectations. Lord God, we know we cannot do it on our own, but only by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know that there are people here who need to surrender to you. You know who they are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prick their hearts today so that they would surrender to you. They would confess that they are sinners in need of a Savior. As we all are, they would trust in you as Lord and Savior. Commit to you and believe, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by you. Lord, I know the devil does not want us to commit to you. The devil is speaking to those right here in this congregation, saying, you're good, you're fine, keep living the way you are. But Jesus, I know your Holy Spirit is greater. So I pray for your strong conviction for those that need to turn to you. A conviction that makes us miserable to the point of repentance. Because living for you is always better. It's better today, it's better tomorrow, and it is eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.